difficult for us to appreciate uh, someone else's family tree. I don't know about you, but I have no interest in reading your family tree at the courthouse. Uh, I don't expect you to be excited about my family tree. I think it's pretty exciting. Uh, in my family tree, you'll find a Scott whose name was, last name was Bailey, and there's actually Bailey Town, Scotland, and he's my uncle somewhere back the line, and I think that's pretty fascinating. Uh, you'll also find a, a man you may have heard of by the name of Robert E. Lee, and uh, he is also in my lineage. And then you'll find a whole bunch of Sicilian immigrants who came over to America to have a life of unhindered uh, wealth in their expectation to remove themselves from poverty and from corrupt government. But my family tree is only exciting to me, and it's really not even exciting to me. See, I only know those three facts, and that's just because the people who it is exciting to tell us that those are the realities about our family. My aunt and my dad have spent, I dare say, way too much time studying where we came from and who we are related to, and many of us just don't appreciate our family tree or the family tree of anybody else. And I think that that's the mentality we generally bring to this section of our Bibles. We feel like we're looking at the family tree chart of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And we tend to take the same interest in this chart as we would if we were sitting down looking at each other's family tree or genealogy. This section, if you came to your New Testament to read through your New Testament, I dare say this is some of the fastest reading you ever do anywhere, right? We plow through the genealogies. We can make amazing time. We notice a few names in the middle that we recognize, and we kind of just look at them and realize, yes, Jesus was related to David. Moving on, past the names that I can't pronounce, and on to more exciting things. So I'm going to challenge that perspective this morning because maybe in the folly of my youth, I'm going to teach you this morning and I'm going to preach from the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I am going where angels dare to trod. I am preaching from a genealogy and I trust that it will be beneficial to you. I also trust that it will change forever the way you look at the genealogy that we find in Matthew 1 and the genealogy that we find in Luke chapter 3. Because these are not just lists. They don't just exist to give us information. They are not bragging rights. This is not a king who is declaring to his subjects how great he is and who his fathers were and who his grandfathers were and why they should fear him. This is something entirely different when we come to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. For the sake of clarity, I hope it is clear today as we study this section, verses 1 all the way to 17, we're going to divide it up into three major divisions. I hope that are logical, that make sense, that you can hang this on and that you can walk away remembering there is value when we come to the beginning of the book of Matthew. The three divisions are going to be the premise for the genealogy, the people in the genealogy, and the point of the genealogy. So the premise, then the people. I know you're scared of the people. We're not going to actually go through every person mentioned. And then the point ultimately is the most important part of our study this morning. 
Now, if you weren't with us last week, let me remind you where we are. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was a disciple of Christ. He walked with the Lord. He talked with the Lord. He knew Him personally. And what we find here is an eyewitness account to the activities and the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's written primarily to Jewish people to prove that Jesus was, in fact, who He said He was. He was their promised Messiah. Matthew wrote this around AD 60. And you say, well, what does that mean? All that means is your book's in the New Testament, are not arranged chronologically. Sometimes, maybe we think that. Matthew must be the earliest because it was the first. It's not actually earliest. It's quite a bit after Christ passed off the scene. And in AD 60 or thereabout, 50s, 60s, maybe late 60s, Matthew penned this account by remembering what he had seen. Just for reference sake, as we study the book of Matthew, and we're going to go paragraph by paragraph, which means next week we're going to have Christmas in September, because we're going to come to the birth account of Christ. After these first sections, Matthew does not work in a chronological fashion. He is geographical in this gospel. So if you've ever wondered why, you came to your New Testament and you read Matthew's account, and it seemed to be out of place in the events of time from, say, Luke's account, The reason for that is that Matthew was writing geographically. So he writes from Jesus' ministry in Judea, then his ministry in Galilee, then his ministry outside of Galilee, and then he concludes with his entrance into Jerusalem. So Matthew is not written in a chronological, this happened, then this happened, but rather Jesus was in this location, and here are some of the events that happened in that location. I hope that will help you. I'll try to point those out as we come to them so that you can know that there is no contradiction in your New Testament. Uh, Luke and Matthew do not disagree with each other. They're just written from an entirely different point of view. All right, that brings us to the genealogy, and I am going to dare to read this for us. So you follow along and read with me as I begin in verse 1, and we'll read all the way through to verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 1 is the title of Matthew's Gospel. That was his title statement. That's what he put on the book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David, repeated again, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. 
Verse 10, And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jechaniah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jechaniah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Elikim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and finally, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon or to Babylon to Christ, 14 more generations. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. We begin with the premise of this genealogy, and really this is important for us. This is the main point, if you will, of grasping the weight of what is given to us in these verses. These are difficult. I am in the sermon graveyard in the genealogies. This is not an easy place to be. I understand it's not an easy place to think for you this morning. It's not an easy place for me to think this morning either. And I'm trying to talk about it. But it is vital for us to understand the premise of why we have this genealogy. What is the purpose of this genealogy being included at the very front of Matthew's Gospel? He could have done this, you understand, at any time. Why did Matthew place this as the first comment out of the gate as he recounted the life of Christ. The Messiah's lineage, as we've already mentioned, is not given to us as a useless work of ink and paper or waste, nor is it an illustration of bragging from another king. This list of people, though it's not exhaustive, is a proving list. This is the first and primary proof that Jesus is who he said he was. So Jesus claimed throughout his ministry, and we're going to find this all the way through the Gospel account of Matthew, that he was, in fact, the promised one of Yahweh God, right? The covenants all pointed to him. The law is fulfilled in him, he'll say, when we get to the Sermon on the Mount. All through the Gospel account, Matthew will claim that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. Look no further. Stop searching and believe. That is the message of the Gospel of Matthew. And this genealogy is the proving ground right out of the gate that that claim by our Lord was in fact valid. That's the premise. The premise is wrapped up in verse 1 and the title that's given to Jesus of Nazareth. The book of the genealogy of, and this is very intentional, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. 
The rest of this genealogy proves that those claims are true. And you say, well, what are those claims? Well, first of all, the claim of Christ is the Greek word that's an equivalent to the Hebrew word for Messiah. Right off the bat, this is the genealogy of the Messiah. This is a the claim for which they killed him. The blasphemy of claiming to be from God, to be God, to be the promised Messiah. goes on to say that he is the son of David and the son of Abraham. In other words, not only is he the Messiah, but as the son of David, Jesus of Nazareth was the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. Whoa, you lost me there. What are you talking about? The Old Testament nation of Israel, God's elected people, He provided for them a king in Saul. Following Saul, King David, you know from your Old Testament reading or from Sunday school, King David came on the scene. He killed Goliath. He spent years waiting to be the king. And yet, when he came into the throne, God made a promise to David that his line would always sit on the throne of Israel. And that though there may be gaps, the line, the seed of David, would eternally sit on the throne of national Israel. So for Jesus to claim not only to be the promised one, the Messiah, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, but also to be the direct descendant, the son in the lineage and the seed of David, was to claim the rightful heir of the throne. It's a designation that is critical to the Jewish people. In fact, go back with me in your Old Testament to Psalm 89. Let's look at this together. Psalm 89. We'll do a little bit of turning this morning. It'll help us stay alert in the genealogy. Okay? Psalm 89. Verse 19 kind of sets the table for us. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. And then verse 20 is crucial to our understanding. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love, my covenant love, shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. goes on, verse 25, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Verse 29, I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. God promised David that his throne would exist eternally, and that his descendants would sit on that throne. If you go back to the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel Probably in rather unused section. Second Samuel chapter seven. We find 
this promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body. Who shall come from your body? I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom, here it is, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. David's throne would exist forever. So the claim to be the son of David marked Christ Jesus as the rightful heir in the line of King David. Now let's understand when this is being written. Matthew is writing here, 80, 60, or thereabouts, somewhere in that range, certainly there is no king on the throne of Israel, right? You ever think about where and what timing your Bible is written? There's no one on the throne. There's been a massive gap. Rome is ruling, right? That's why Pilate was very active in the crucifixion of Christ. Rome is dominating. There is no king. In fact, the temple is about to be destroyed in about ten years from the writing of this gospel, and there won't even be a temple for the nation of Israel. And so right in the heart of the most desperate of times for this nation, with the promise of a permanent line of David on the throne of Israel, in the middle of this delay, in the middle of this gap, Jesus claims to be the son of David. He has a kingly bloodline. Not only that, but the last designation and the premise for this genealogy is the last title, the son of Abraham. And this one is obvious if he's the son of David, right? David was Jewish. He was a part of the nation of Israel. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. Now, as the son of David we see the rightful heir to the throne in Christ. And this is the premise. This is the proving ground that we'll find in this genealogy. As the son of Abraham, we find him as heir to the promise to Abraham as well. Not only is he the rightful heir of the promise to David to sit upon the throne and to rule over Israel, he is the rightful heir to the promise to Abraham. Do you remember the promise to Abraham? Do you remember what was made? As God's covenant with Abraham, Abraham was in the wilderness. We're going to get to read it in just a few weeks. Genesis chapter 12. God promised Abraham a very specific promise. Must have been unbelievable to hear that this was the promise from Yahweh God to Abram. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here's the promise, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, those who dishonor, and 
who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, notice the last phrase of verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through the Davidic line, the nation was blessed with a king. The covenant was that there would permanently be a Davidic line on the throne of Israel. Though there may be gaps, there may be delays, the line of David would go on. In Abraham, the blessing was to all nations that God would raise up a seed from Abraham that would bless the entire earth. All nations, Gentiles and Jews alike, would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. The immediate fulfillment of that promise was who? Who was the immediate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham? Isaac. Isaac. And yet, through his seed, ultimately one would come that would touch and bless every nation, all peoples, all families of the earth. So, the Abrahamic covenant was to bless all nations. D.A. Carson, one of my favorite commenters, says this, Jesus the Messiah came in fulfillment of the kingdom promises to David and the Gentile blessings promises to Abraham. Jesus Christ was the ultimate fulfillment. And that is the premise of the genealogy. Matthew's premise in placing the genealogy before us is to prove that Jesus is the national fulfillment of David's covenant and he is the international fulfillment of Abraham's covenant with God. God's promises to Abraham and to David were delayed but never nullified and eventually they were fulfilled in none other than Jesus, born of Mary, the son of Joseph. This is the word of the Lord, and it's the premise of this genealogy. So based off of verse 1, you're probably already exhausted, but based off of verse 1, we now move to the people that are represented in the genealogy. So what's here? What's here? Who is represented? Why are they pointed out? This is not exhaustive. This is not everybody who was from the time of Abraham to the time of Christ. There are generations missed. There are gaps. So why are these folks included? Who are they? What do we know about them? And how do they fit into the premise of us having a genealogy recorded for us of Jesus of Nazareth? And I think, though we won't be able to do full justice, we'll get to get a look at least at the people that are represented here. It's not helpful for us in the name of expository preaching, to unpack every name that is here. In fact, many of these names are only recorded here. We don't know anything about these people other than that they were a part of the faithfulness of God in providing a Messiah. They were a part of the lineage and the genealogy of Christ. Here's an important note. The lineage that we find in Matthew is different entirely really, from the lineage we find in Luke. And you may say, well, I've wondered about that. I've been reading in Luke, and I've matched up with Matthew, and they have different names. And I thought, well, that's a problem. How are we going to figure that out? Matthew's gospel and his genealogy is based upon the lineage through Joseph. He is working back through Joseph, the husband of Mary. And though Joseph is not the birth the biological father of Christ, Christ still inherited his line as his earthly father. 
Luke's gospel, on the other hand, beginning at David, really begins at Adam and works backwards, back to Jesus. But beginning in David, we start to see shifts and changes. And the reason for that is it is operating off of Mary's lineage. So Luke and Matthew have different names. Different people are represented. A few are the same. The reason for that is that in the miracle of grace, there were similarities in the lineage between Mary and Joseph. Luke's most concerned with Gentile people recognizing that the bloodline of Christ matched him as the Savior to all people. Matthew is most concerned that we realize that he's the heir to the throne of David and that he is the rightful heir of the promises given to David and to Abraham. Both have the same end, that he's the Messiah and that he must be worshipped. But they come from totally different perspectives. So don't allow your bibliology, your confidence in God's word, to be dashed on the rocks of different names in the genealogies. Even if you're a skimmer in the genealogies, you may have seen that there are different names here. Another important note, Jewish genealogies skip entire sections, and I mentioned that, and keep that in mind, because if you were to go back and try to trace your Old Testament history, you may have people missing, or people that you don't know about included, who were not recorded in the Old Testament. We have Abraham, we have Judah, we have people that we recognize, we have David, we have Obed, Jesse, Josiah, we have kings, we have prophets, we have Gentiles, but there are four people in this list that I want to point out to you this morning that are unlikely candidates to be put into the genealogy of our Lord. And if I haven't lost you yet, this is a good section for you to perk up, listen up, and get this. This is a nugget from God's Word. There are four people in this genealogy, and you heard their names. Maybe at least one of their names popped out to you and say, I, that name doesn't sound like it should be a part of this heritage. All four of the names, all four of the people are ladies. And all four of them represent a very interesting and unique history. The first one is in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, and Perez and of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. By Tamar. Tamar was an integral part in God's sovereign plan in the in the production line of the Messiah. She was a bearer of seed that would lead to the Messiah, the fulfillment of the promise. Do you remember who Tamar is? She's the daughter-in-law of Judah, Genesis 38. She deceives her father-in-law. She deceives him that she's a prostitute. Playing a prostitute, she entices her father-in-law to lie with her. She conceives by her father-in-law. He then is caught in his sin. You remember she says, leave, leave evidence. So he leaves evidence of himself that, that he was there. He's furious that she's impregnated. He comes to her and says, who did this? And she says, whoever owns these things. You remember this story? This is not one that we go back and read for devotions because we really get a blessing out of it, okay? This is Tamar. 
This is a Gentile. This is a Canaanite lady. She was deceptive. She prostituted her body. She enticed her father-in-law to incest. And by the miracle of grace, God used even Tamar to be a to be a line, to be a heritage to the Messiah. This is fascinating. The second one, we have Tamar in verse 3. The second one, you know this one well, Rahab in verse 5. Now, we all know Rahab. In fact, this morning, they're studying, they studied Rahab in Sunday school with the little kids. And I said, David, how are you pulling this off? There are questions that come up when we talk about Rahab. Rahab was a wicked woman. She was a prostitute by profession, not by deception. This was what she did. She was another Gentile lady. You remember that she came to hear of Yahweh God and His power, and she believed that He was the only true God. God sent His spies into the land of Canaan, and she hid those spies in the back of her house for their safety. You remember Rahab. She hung out the cord out of her window so that when city was destroyed, her family was preserved, and God in His grace used Rahab in the lineage of the Messiah. Fascinating. I don't know if you've put together your Bible history, but if we go to verse 5 and you think a little bit, Boaz by Rahab. So here's Rahab the harlot who she stayed all through biblical history. In fact, that's how we know her. Rahab the harlot. Saved by grace. God redeems this lady. She births a son. His name is Boaz. Unbelievable in God's providence. Because we love Boaz. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. We love him. He's the good guy who gave all of the uh, wheat and grain to Ruth. Boaz meets this Canaanite, or this Gentile widow, rather, who married a Jew out of the obedience of God. She should have never been married to a Jewish man. And he finds her, and Boaz and Ruth have Obed. So the fourth, or the third, unlikely, is Ruth herself. We have Tamar, very unlikely candidate. Rahab, also an unlikely candidate. Ruth now, another Gentile, and another lady who is living outside of God's provision. She's an illegitimate wife for a Jew. According to Deuteronomy 7, they were not to marry outside of Jewish people because of the false gods that were represented in the Gentile nations. But she was grafted in to the line of Christ by grace. Her grandson, Ruth and Boaz, they were pretty proud of their grandson. Their great-grandson was none other than David. Jesse raised a great family. He had good, healthy boys. I'm sure they were proud of him. They worked hard. They had a good heritage. And there was that one, that great-grandson, whose name was David, the anointed king of Israel. God's anointed king of Israel. So we have Tamar, we have Rahab, we have Ruth, all declaring the grace of God in providing Messiah. And then the last one that we find is in verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David the king, 
David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. By the wife of Uriah. And you know who this is as well, because this is a familiar account. Bathsheba. Bathsheba was in the line of the promised Messiah. The wife of Uriah, who committed adultery with the king, that resulted in the murder of her husband. By God's unbelievable grace, was used to bring forth ultimately the promised Messiah, none other than the Son of God. You say, this is amazing. This is overwhelming. God showed grace to Tamar. Her sins were horrific. She was a Gentile. She was outside of the family of God. God showed grace to to Rahab. She was a wicked woman. What were they doing in that town? And why did they come to her? Why did God choose her? Ruth? Why did she come back? Why did God choose to use her? Why Bathsheba of all the despicable things committing adultery with the king leading to the murder of her husband? I ask you, when you encounter, like you do in this genealogy, the grace of God, does it expose your self-righteousness or does it make you revel in God's grace to you as well? Here's the fact of the matter. God was at work using His grace to accomplish His promise of a Messiah and His grace is no less spectacular in His salvation of your soul. The transformation of your wicked heart that sought after your way that was hell-bent against Him is no less miraculous than the providence we find in the genealogy. Grace. Grace on display. The people of the genealogy are all testimonies to God's gracious work in bringing salvation to sinners through the promise of a Messiah, a substitute for their sin. The miracle of God's goodness. He uses sinful people who are sinning to bring salvation for their sin by bringing a Savior. Now, we conclude the genealogy in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, David to deportation, 14, deportation to Christ, 14. And I just want to touch this to help you see further the grace of God. But the conclusion of the genealogy is also a testimony to God's work because these represent major segments of God's work with his people. Abraham to David was marked out by unbelievable disobedience in God's people, and yet he continued to preserve his promise, his faithfulness. From David to Babylon is one of the most spotted sections of our Bible. This is where we read Joshua. It's where we read Judges. The people are just despicably disobedient. Kings, where they chase after every false god, these are the people of God, and yet in His grace and in His faithfulness, He continues the line of the promised Messiah. And then finally, from Babylon all the way to the time of Christ, are 14 generations of God's grace. These are called the dark ages of the nation of Israel because we don't know anything about the people that are recorded in this section. We don't know who Zedek is. We don't know who Atom is. We don't know who these people were. And yet in God's grace, He was using them to be a means to accomplish 
His faithfulness to His promises. Okay? The premise of the genealogy is Christ is the Messiah. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. He is the rightful fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. The people are amazing because the people expose that God was gracious to sinners. That's never changed. And then finally, we conclude with the point of the genealogy, and this is really the most crucial. So what? I mean, really. You picked up some extra facts about the genealogy. You may actually read the names or try to pronounce them in your head next time you see this, but by two or three times, is there really any reason to be going back to this section? What's the point? What's the benefit? Why is this included? Why is this inspired? Why is Matthew concerned that we get this right out of the gate? There could be no better question. What is the point of the genealogy? Here's the point. Boiled down. The point of this genealogy, the family tree, the boring family tree, the point of it all is that Yahweh God is to be trusted for His promises And Jesus is to be worshipped as the fulfillment of those promises. Period. God is faithful. Jesus is the Messiah. There's no other option. That's the point of this genealogy. It was to stack the deck so in favor of Christ being who He said He was that you're left at the very beginning with your head hanging saying, yes, He is the promised one. He is the fulfillment. God is faithful. He is faithful. God is faithful to His promise to Abraham. He's faithful to His promise to David. And He's faithful to His promises to you. You come to sections like this, sometimes it's challenging. I was talking to somebody this week and they said, how are you going to make this apply to us? How are you going to make the genealogy apply I don't, make, I don't make it apply. It does apply. It's just how I'm going to explain how it applies. But it does apply. And it applies primarily at the practical level in our confidence in God. Do we really believe that what he said he would do, he will do? Do we really believe that who he says he is, he actually is? The nation didn't. Even when they saw the fulfillment in living flesh... They didn't believe. They had religion. They had some semblance of an idea of who God was from His revelation of Himself in the Old Testament, and yet they didn't believe Him to be faithful. They doubted His faithfulness, and they rejected His fulfillment in Christ. So think about all the promises that are yours in Christ. There are many. He's with you. He hears your prayer. He'll comfort you. He gives you hope. You have a Savior in Christ. He's made a full sacrifice. You don't need to work anymore for your salvation. He's accomplished it all. All of those are your promises. He's a high priest who hears you and understands you and empathizes with you. That's His promise. That's His character. He'll provide for every need you have. That's His promise. You believe it? You think he's faithful? Will he do it? Is he trustworthy? 
Can he be leaned upon? The point of the genealogy is to say God is faithful. Folks, he's faithful still today. He's faithful to you. He's faithful to me. His promises are true. The genealogy just exposes the greatest promise that he has ever fulfilled, that of a substitute for sinners. The second point is that Jesus is that promised substitute. His lineage proves that he's the promised seed of Abraham, and his lineage proves that he's the promised heir and the rightful heir of David's throne. There's only one response that's legitimate when we encounter the truth about who Jesus was and who he is today. And that is to worship him with every part of our life. If we believe something less about Christ than what he has revealed about himself, if we believe him to be something less than the promised fulfillment of a Messiah. If we believe Him to be something less than God Himself in human form, then we are left with something other than a Savior. Something less than a perfect Lamb. Something less than a perfect sacrifice. God's Word is trustworthy when He says He will do. And Jesus is the Messiah. Who He was must be received for eternal life and salvation from God's wrath. Only two groups of people ever exist and have ever existed. Those who are trusting God and following Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior, their Master, and those who aren't. I mean, really, folks, it's it's not complicated in one sense. We can boil it down. We either worship Him for who He is and we believe what he claimed to be by faith, right? We can't see it. We can't see him. But by faith, we believe. Or we join with the chorus of all humanity born into sin in rejecting the claims that Christ is the perfect lamb, rejecting the claim that God is faithful, rejecting the character of what we see in the Word of God. We're born in the rejecting crowd. It's where we exist by default. Many of you this morning, along with me, by grace, by God's grace, no different than what we found in the genealogy, have come to believe, to receive this one, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah. The rest of Matthew will build on the genealogy. It'll all build up from this. We'll go into the birth. The miracle of what happened. We'll go into the works of Christ. The miracles that he accomplished in his earthly ministry. His teaching ministry will be exposed in its most detail in the Gospel of Matthew. And all of it will be building upon the reality that God has been faithful to fulfill his promises. His covenants were never left undone. And that Jesus Christ is, in fact, who he claimed to be. So we're left with a heavy weight upon us. If we don't know him, if we do not worship him, if we have not submitted our lives to him, this genealogy demands it of you. Eternity is at stake in your perspective on the genealogy. 
no less than eternity. And yet, for those of us who know Christ, this is a phenomenal listing out of the faithful working of a sovereign God. This is God's providence on display. This is His grace on display. And we are left with hearts that marvel that we have been included in His grace. Not by works which we have done, but by His grace alone. So, will you be marked out? Will I be marked out? Will this church be marked out by confidence in the promises of God? Both eternal promises and temporal promises. Will we be a trusting people because of what we know to be true and what we see to be true from the Word of God? Will we be marked by faith in the ultimate promise? Will we be Christ-centered because we have faith that He is who He claims to be? Does your life, does my life, reflect the profession of faith in this promised one? Or is our life a mockery of the grace that we see on display in the lineage? That's really the question for us as believers this morning. Do I live my life in light of the matchless grace of God? Or do I live it almost as a mockery and defiance of taking for granted the grace that is ours This should rip us back to reality. We are saved by grace and by grace alone.